So Peyton, this is kind of funny because we were talking earlier and we already talked about this, but I've got to talk about it. Did you, <laughs> we talked, <laughs> I was like, I didn't know if I should tell you earlier, but uh, we talk about soda a lot on this podcast. It's soda and animals, it turns out, right. are two of our big things. Japan. Yeah, so I I don't know. I don't know why, but this week, I told you earlier, the algorithmic gods wanted me to read about how McDonald's will be removing their self-serve soda machines. Which I think is kind of an outrage. I think, I literally said earlier, and I wrote it down to say today, it's the end of an era. No longer can I go up and get my one-third Fanta, one-third Sprite, one-third Coke drink, because they're replacing it with their automated machines they have in the back, right? So what they're going to do is click Coke large, and then it will give you a large Coke, which is great. But what if I want to do a mix? They're not going to do it. They're not going to give me a mixture. I often will do a cheat where I'll do half Coke, half Coke zero, Mm. so that... Uh, I'm kind of hedging my bets on if I'm going to get diabetes or cancer. I'll just get like a little bit of both (laughs) and maybe I won't go too far in one direction. Or you're building immunities to both quicker. Yes. But but slower, but but without the... More effective. Exactly. It's a good idea. Yeah. Another thing that really irks me about this is like the whole ice situation. I know you have a little bit of control at some places to ask about ice. And I know that like Coke and McDonald's have engineered the perfect amount of ice combination for flavor and stuff. I've heard about this, but like, I don't want ice in my drinks. And if I do, I want the tiniest bit of ice. I'm exactly the same way. I always get either light or no ice, which I will say McDonald's is good at. They know they don't complain and they know that's normal, right? But I want to be able to just go up and get my ice-free Coke. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it really does feel like the end of an era. It really does feel like I'm being, my child now who's growing up is going to be robbed of this experience that I had as well as everyone else had before me. Mine is actually a generational experience where I witnessed my dad so many times we would be at a restaurant and he would have a, a Diet Coke, or he would just say, I'd like a diet, which out of context is kind of funny. It is. And he would have his diet, and he would drink it through, and like if it was a, a restaurant with a waiter, he would say, like, they would ask, do you want a refill? And he'd say, yeah, but just fill it halfway up. And I watched him do this enough times that when I would go to fast food places when I was a teenager, I would get like a Coke or a Mountain Dew or whatever, and I would fill up the whole drink at first. And then I would go back up and I would get half as like a way of portion control. Sure. So not being able to do this at a McDonald's, I mean, it ruins a family heirloom that I might be passing down to one of my kids. That's so right. We had to do something about Some this. Some things change and this is one of them. And I'm not happy about it. A bright side though, uh, it's not going to be fully rolled out in all McDonald's until 2032. Have your kids now. Train them up while you can. Have them now, right now. Don't wait. If you wanted a sign, this is the sign. Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it, but we're going to tell you about it anyways. I'm Peyton Gessel. And I'm Chris Umfries. So Amy and I have been working on our pasta cooking skills recently. We're learning how a true Italian would cook some of these pastas, maybe how they would make the actual sauce. We're, we're buying sheep cheese that's been made the same way since the times of ancient Rome. Interesting. We're working on our garnishing skills. And to be honest, a lot of it is we're trying to cover the gluten-free noodles that we have and try to, try to make everything else better to make up for these kind of 
okay noodles. Sure. So I was recently looking up the history of several different kinds of pastas and dishes like that, uh, specifically ones that were a little bit more traditionally Italian, just to get some inspiration of things we could try to do. Sure. And I was reading about ragu, which is not just the can of tomato sauce that you find in the grocery store, but ragu is a dish. And it is usually prepared a la bolognese, which means in the style of people from Bologna, Italy. And mm. in this case, a la bolognese means you serve the ragu with ground beef, basically. Okay. And I saw that there are some other different meats that you can serve it with, and I saw that some people will serve it with chevaline, which is a fancy name for horse meat. Okay. So I thought, like, well, we should try this out. Like, I want to I wanna try this in the way that it's supposed to be done. Um, and I like eating foods, especially like, a, like an exotic meat. Like, I've had gator. I've had a few other things like that. And they... Depending on how you prepare them, it can be fun or not. But like, yeah, I'll try a horse. I'll try some horse meat. So I start looking online to see where I can find somewhere to get it. You can't buy horse meat in America. It is impossible to buy it. And even requiring it is almost impossible. So that has me asking the question, why don't we eat horses in America when plenty of other countries do, almost all other countries are okay with it. So why not us? So I want to get your opinion first, Chris. What are your initial thoughts based on what I've said? Would you be willing to eat horse meat? I would try it. Uh, yes. I think there are multiple reasons. One, I like meat. Yes. Two, I have no personal connection to horses. I know Same. a lot of people have a lot of feelings towards horses. Something that I, I do find interesting is I was talking... When we first moved to the town we live in, I was talking to a guy, um, and he told me, I don't remember exactly when this was, but it's in the last 30 years. In this area, there used to be a farm that sold horses for meat. Like, again, we're talking decades ago, probably, but that would be the first time I ever really knew about that. And then I'm pretty sure he told me the reason they stopped is because people stopped being okay with it. Yes, we're going to get into this because... It's very confusing. So humans have been eating horses for a long time. The, the horse was domesticated about 5,000 years ago. And at the early times when it was domesticated, it was used for meat. Like they, they're not using it for transportation. They're not using it for the horse to carry things. They're just using it for food like they would, I don't know, a cow. And it wasn't until later on when people discovered how useful a tool a horse can be. Like... Anyone who's played a game like Red Dead Redemption knows the the value of a horse. Yeah. Like you buy, you get that first horse, you spend way too much money on it, and you protect that thing, at least early on in the game, because it's such a hassle if that horse dies and you have to get a new one. So in some cultures, I don't want to say they were worshipped, but kind of. So in like Iceland and Sweden during the Middle Ages, there was some sort of pagan festival where horses were sacrificed and eaten as part of like the religion. And around this time, Catholicism is coming in. And the Pope at the time bans eating horse meat in Sweden, Iceland, so that they can't perform their ritual and they can't do perform, they can't practice their religion. And it caused like a huge uproar. And there was a lot of controversy over this because they wanted to eat that horse. Hmm. And maybe it's because there were other connotations, like they're trying to practice their religion. But 
they they probably were okay with it. They probably didn't mind the taste if they sure. were doing it for the ritual. But that was like over a thousand years ago. I thought like maybe this is like our whole we Catholics eat eels at Christmas thing because right. of yeah, like we talked about in a previous episode. But it's not. And in modern day Europe, I wouldn't say that everyone is just like eating horses left and right, but you can find a shop that sells it. You might have to go to a butcher specifically, but like it's everywhere. So why is America not like this? And in the 1800s and 1900s, I learned that there was a bit of a stigma, not about horse meat, but someone who ate horse meat. Hmm. It was associated with things like poverty and war. So at that, you know, in the 1800s and into the early 1900s, horses are incredibly valuable for like all of the things that come with it, whether it's riding a horse to get from one place to the next, things like that. So when food is hard to come by, you have to make the tough decision to slaughter your horse to feed your family. So nobody wants to eat a horse because that looks like you're doing bad in life. Mm. And this is where I think the term, I'm so hungry that I could eat a horse comes from. Because in that phrase, it it's saying that like, I'll do it if I have to, but this is not what I would prefer. And it turned out that it started to become a political insult. If you were a politician that people blamed for something bad happening, or if you get elected, we're all going to be poor and send us into a reception into a recession, they would call you a name like horse meat, Harry, Hmm. or, Oh, this is going to be a horse meat Congress, isn't it? And because the idea of eating horses just meant we're all doing bad. So, in the like the several decades after World War II, things are starting to get a little bit better uh, economically in America. But in some of the like the recessions of the seventies, times get a little bit tough. Horse meat is cheaper, and it actually starts to find some pockets in America where people love it. And Portland, Oregon, is one of the specific ones where there was like quite the cottage community of people eating horses making cookbooks about the best ways to prepare a horse. And it was something that wasn't uh, something that you were ashamed of. It was like cool kind of, Hmm. but overall the general country was kind of saying like, we're not against eating a horse, but we're better than that. And that led to the slaughterhouses not doing as well financially over time. They start to not do as well. They shut down because they're not getting enough business. And eventually all the slaughterhouses close and none of them replace them. So now nobody is legally allowed to slaughter a horse. And then the government says, we're no longer going to inspect slaughterhouses. So if there's no one who's legally allowed to slaughter a horse and there's no one to inspect it to say it's allowed to be sold, how do you get the horse? So it is legal to eat a horse, but if you can't get one, how do you... you so, like, basically the only way you're saying is, like, if I raised a horse and then butchered it. Farm to table is the only way in if you're staying in America. Now, Mexico sells tons of horse meat. Canada also as well. So, if you're willing to cross a border or if you're willing to smuggle it in, yes, you can get horse meat. But I'll, let me talk about some of the more objective cons of eating horse meat before you decide to do okay. that. So... Since there is no inspection on if the horse meat is safe to eat, 
no one, like no doctors are really thinking about what they're putting into the horse and how that affects it if you eat it. So all of the medicines that go into taking care of a horse, which my understanding is there's a decent amount. There's a lot of horses are pretty high maintenance animals. Mm -hmm. And so if they're being given uh, vaccines or injections, or if they're given this medicine for this illness and you eat a horse that has this, it is very, very likely going to make you sick. I don't Mm. know if it'll kill you, but it's not worth the meat eating the meat. But it seems that the UK has this figured out that They have a system where certain horses are designated for consumption. Certain horses are designated for hobby or anything that's not eating meat. And the horses that are designated for food, they don't get certain medicine and they're cleared safe to eat. There's a a regulatory body. But the gun question is, how do you keep track of which horses you can eat and which ones you can't eat? You give horse passports. Horse passports. Yes. In the UK, horses, every horse has a passport. They have this little passport book, and it has all of this information about the horse, kind of like a human one. It's got, like, their date of birth and all of these stats about the horse. It has, like, vaccination records and things of that sort. But my favorite part is they have, instead of a photo of the horse... They have a few little simple illustrations of horses, and your job as the owner is to color in all the little markings on the horses so it looks like your horse. To color it in. So it's like you're making a diagram of your horse. Yes. It is the most horse girl thing I've ever heard. (laughs) So back on topic, though, I had to tell you about that. So I wanted to list some of the reasons, now that we've said, here's why you shouldn't eat a horse. Here, I want to say, here's why we should be eating the horses. They are leaner than beef, and they taste like a mix between beef and venison. So most people who are okay with beef, like, they're probably going to like this. And I haven't had much venison in my life. So uh, my coworker Tom was talking about this, and he he hunts deer, and he hunted a deer last fall. And when he found out I hadn't had a lot of experiences with it, he said, I'll get you, like, a good cut so you can really see what it's like. And he gets me a venison tenderloin, and I, I sued feed that up. It was really good. Yeah, like, it's very good. I would say on par with a lot of beef tenderloins that I've had. So if if Chevalin tastes kind of like those, the taste is not, like, the flavor is not the problem. The texture, maybe it's a little bit leaner. That Maybe that is maybe not as desirable. I can't imagine it's that crazy. No. I've read, like, nutritionists saying that... If you saw somebody who really cared about like building muscle, if they were someone who went to the gym a lot, they don't put a lot of like butter and fats on their meats when they're cooking it and keep it plain. Like that kind of person would really benefit from eating horse meat over something like beef or chicken. So another reason why we should look into eating horses is that we have an overpopulation problem of horses in the Wild West. There are over 100,000 wild horses out on Bureau of Land Management lands. And the weather has not been great over the last few decades there. This has been kind of a weird year where there has been some rain, but overall it's been drought-like conditions in the West. So there are too many horses and they can't get enough food and water and they are dying because there's too many of them. In the Midwest, we have problems with with white-tailed deer. There are too many around. It's actually throwing off the way the ecosystem works. 
And that's why we have hunters pay money to hunt them, to kill them, to keep the population in control. Why don't we just do that with horses? You're telling me uh, it's news to me that there's hundreds of thousands of wild horses. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like where would you, where at? Uh, I would say kind of we're about to go on vacation in a month. Okay. I'm hoping to do a little bit of recon actually. Kind of like I'd say near the four corners. So okay. Utah, Nevada, Arizona, like kind of maybe a little bit of Southern California. Um, but like, especially on public lands, they can't do anything about it. Be, I think there's like certain protections about certain areas of land. And I assume area. you can't hunt. You cannot hunt them. Right. You cannot. And also if it's on like a reservation, right. I have no idea what rules do. Or and that, don't those are that. all different. I feel like all the time, right. Like it's always a different set of rules. Absolutely. So that's really interesting. I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And people like the government's been trying to find ways to, to solve this. Like they don't like sometimes they will rescue wild horses and they'll like t- try to tame them and domesticate them. So that way, like this horse gets to live uh, and it gets like a nice cushy life and it doesn't starve in the middle of nowhere. But like that's that's a lot of money. And maybe I don't. Are there enough people that want to adopt a horse? Like probably not. Yeah. I've went through a few reasons why maybe you should or shouldn't eat a horse. I think the most fascinating thing about this whole topic is the hurdle that horse meat consumption has to overcome. It's that taboo that like a horse isn't the kind of animal you eat. And I've asked a lot of people about this and I can't get a good answer out of them. So for example, some people say, well, you shouldn't eat a horse because it's smart. So are pigs. Objectively, from what I've read, pigs are pigs are smarter than horses. Cows are right around the same level as horses. Hmm. Chickens are smarter than we give them credit for. And if we're trying to play a game of we only eat dumb animals, that doesn't really apply in the situation. And we shouldn't eat pork as well. Or we shouldn't eat chicken because it's close. And I know that a lot of people try to talk about like the companionship. That's why we shouldn't eat them. And I've heard people also say like, well, yeah, like you love a horse in the same way you love a dog and you wouldn't eat your dog, right? Horses are very large. They take up a lot of money and a lot of space. And I think I'm not much of a dog person, but dogs are a lot better at showing companionship. A dog can lay in the bed with you and snuggle. Like you can't do that with a horse. So I feel like it's not a very good like one-to-one comparison. Right. Not denying that a horse can't show affection and be nice to an owner. But I feel like I know people that have populated pigs as pets. Like once again, I feel like the pig is kind of the, the one that ruins a lot of these arguments. So I feel like the last one is the true reason why it's so hard to eat horses in America. They have somehow attained emeritus status of being important at one point in history, and they've just been coasting on this for hundreds of years. They are no longer that level of important, but they just get a free pass. So while I'm not really like champing at the bit to get some chevaline in my ragu, I guess I just find it funny that Americans are totally fine with their processed pink slime fast food chicken nuggets but they some reason just draw the line at horses. So a little while ago, 
my friend came over uh, to my house to help me with a home project. Uh, his name's Danny. Uh, he actually listens to the podcast, so hello. Shout but out. But Danny, um, he took me to the hardware store so we could pick up all the things that you need to pick up in order for us to build this project we had going on. And Danny drives a Jeep. And I have ridden in a Jeep before. Uh, I've ridden in Jeeps multiple times, but never have I long-term for very much longer than a small commute ridden in a Jeep. And Danny, uh, we drove 20 minutes uh, to the hardware store, got the stuff, drove back. And I saw something I'd seen before from afar, but never had I been in the car as it happens. He waved at the other Jeep guys, right? If you drive a Jeep, you wave at the other Jeep guys. And I've seen this with motorcycles. If you ride a motorcycle, they got this little wave they give to each other. And, and, I think you just get in by getting a motorcycle, right? Yeah. And, and that's how it works. But it was truly, I never realized how many other Jeeps were on the road until I saw how much he was waving at the other Jeeps. It was pretty crazy, right? It's a lot to to keep remembering to do. It seems like a big responsibility, <laughs> actually. But I got to thinking, where did that come from? Why, why does that happen? How does this work, right? Sure. Well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, in the 40s, uh, the United States Army needed four-wheel drive vehicles for World War II. They had to have these, and so they decided, this is what we need. We're going to put out a proposal to all the people in America who can create this, someone who can build up plans and give us a prototype and see if we like it, and then we can buy from them so that we can have four-wheel drive reconnaissance vehicles in the war. So they sent out, it's like 130-some companies, they said, I want... Uh, I want you to make this vehicle, four-wheel drive, all these specifications, right? And they sent out all this. There was there was some strings attached to this, though, right? Like, I need to have it in our hands in 40-some days. And so I think because of these demands and these strings attached, out of the 130-some companies he reached out to, only two of them even responded to the government's request, right? Two companies. The first company is called Bantam, and the second company is called Willie's Overland, right? And so Bantam is this tiny little company with just a few employees. Uh, Willie's is a little bit bigger and they already made that kind of thing. But basically Willie's said, we need more time. If we're going to do this, we're willing to do it, but we need a lot more time. This is not going to work. And the government was like, no, you you don't have more time. We don't have more time. This is too important. Bantam, this tiny company said, no, I'm not going to do it. But then they decided, well, you know what? And they, so they contacted out contract out someone to make designs. Um, and then somehow this little company was able to, within the time period, they started in July and in September, they delivered this handmade prototype to the government, which they liked and they wanted to order. But our government said, you know what? I, I like what you've done. You've done a good job, but you're not going to be able to meet the demands that we have. This is a big deal. I need lots and lots and lots of these and you're a tiny company. Sure. So uh, they were able to, based on this whole agreement, they were able to turn over the designs and all that to uh, Willys and Ford, right? So they did this because they know these are companies that can make vehicles on large scale and mass that we need and this they need they can fulfill the demand we need. So they decide this is what we're going to do. So Willys and Ford were able to make some adjustments and make some changes and fix some things they didn't like as much or whatever, right? And so finally, they get to a point where they can make the vehicle that the government wants. And Willys was the one making it. But Willys couldn't keep up with the demand either. And so they decided to sign over a non-exclusivity licensing deal to the government so that they could contract out other companies to make the vehicle that they had worked on, right? So now the government has to figure out how do I make uh, more of these? Because we need as, as many as possible. We need tons and tons. There's a lot of people on the ground. There's a lot of things that we need. So they 
were able to turn over all these plans that Willie's officially had made and they were pr- producing the product, they decided to turn it over to Ford as well. So now Ford and Willie's are both churning out Jeeps like crazy. Tons and tons of Jeeps. These are like, this is the first time these have really been made or used. They're designed specifically to get places with no roads and have no problems going in places cars don't go, right? Are they calling them Jeeps at this no, point? No, no. They're called, there's names for them. I didn't even write them down. Willie's? Yeah. There's like, it's like acronyms, like the, the yeah. whatever, right? So they're making, uh, there they were specific names. I should have wrote them down. Ford's was called a different thing. And basically the only difference between them was Ford's like had F's on the bolts and nuts and the, whatever. It was, they were basically the exact yeah. same vehicle. Um, so over this period during the war, these two companies were able to make 640,000 Jeeps wow. for, for use in the war, which is like, it turns out to be like 18% of all vehicles, right? And so Jeeps kind of became a thing uh, because in the government they were used. But when the war was over, these companies thought, why don't we try to make something like this for consumers? Why don't we make something like this for civilians uh, that's not just for war? I think people might be interested in the capabilities of this. And so they decided to produce Jeeps, right? And so Jeep production begins right after the war. They decide to make a civilian Jeep. And a lot of the guys in the war who drove Jeeps or had association with Jeeps, they decided, man, I would love to drive one of those. That's something I would love. So it kind of was this instant connection, right? Where these people who had these vehicles in in their war that they were in and they were in with all their buddies, there's already the community aspect they had there. Well, now they're driving a vehicle that they all had there. And so there's some solidarity with this, right? So a lot of these people begin buying up Jeeps. And so There's no actual answer. There's no for real answer to how did the Jeep wave start. But some of the assumptions are that when they were in war, when they were actually in combat, Jeep drivers would drive by other Jeep drivers and wave as if to symbolize, like, I know what you're doing. I'm doing the same thing and respect. You know what I mean? Wow. Okay. But another is when they got back and all the people from the war who decided to buy one of these on the road, they sort of were able to wave at other Jeep owners because they knew odds are, if you bought this vehicle, you were probably in the war just like I was. And I respect that. And I have a lot of, I have solidarity. I, I was there. I know what you went through. Respect. We right? all have PTSD. Exactly. We all have PTSD together. Exactly. Like we, we have this thing that we share. And so Jeeps were like kind of that, that connection outside of the war that they had. And it was still a part of their life. And so that's another assumption where that came from. Um, but but how do we still do it today? Why do we still do it today? That's an interesting question. I feel like Jeep people like to be in a club. Right. Especially with, are you aware of the whole duck situation? The duck situation? The rubber ducks Jeep thing? No, but I, I tell me about this. It's some sort of new trend. I think some lady on TikTok came up with it. I think she bought a bunch of little rubber ducks and would paint them special and she would go into like a parking lot when she would park her Jeep. And if she saw another Jeep, she'd put a duck on the hood or something along those lines. And this be- has become a trend. And there are several people that drive Jeeps in my neighborhood. And they'll just have like 25 little rubber duckies on their dashboard. And this is the thing that as a Jeep owner, you buy a bunch of these and you just, it's like another way to show. Out. Yeah, they're just like, we respect huh. each other. And here's our fun little game. So I think my answer is I think Jeep people just like to have a bunch of little fun games and the the wave was just the first one. Yeah, I think and I think you're not far off. And I think people it began with the people who have Jeeps are from the war. 
But then Jeeps started getting slightly more popular. The first civilian Jeep was in 1944, right after the war. So they started getting a little more popular as time went on. More people started realizing the capability this had, how maybe they could utilize that themselves. And so they sort of snuck into the group as well, where, you know, I wasn't in the war, but I did get this Jeep. And so now, you know, but they still get the wave, right? And this just slowly starts to move and does the same thing, right? So in 44, this started, well, for the next 30 years, they basically produced the exact same Jeep. Um, but then in 1986, this is when Chrysler purchased Jeep, right? Okay. So they're a mainstream car company, still who owns Jeep to this day. I mean, there's a bunch of parent companies that have sort of changed, oh, but yeah. it's the same. It's so confusing. Yeah. So this starts and... Uh, so even more people are buying Jeeps, right? Because now they're even more widely available and people are more interested. So the, 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 the club just begins to grow. And everyone knows that Jeeps are are cool, right? And they're capable and they had their problems with reliability and such. But as in the 80s, when Chrysler took over, they did start of uh, they did sort of upgrade on what they had before. They made it newer. They made it look a little different. They fixed some things. And so it got a little better and uh, more people got it. Well, same thing happens. This Jeep is out for another decade. Uh, and then another model comes out same company makes it, they make it look a little better, make it more fuel efficient, make it, they change the the mechanical structure and stuff, right? So it's, it's just getting slowly better and better. Sure. The Jeep community keeps growing and growing. People continue waving at one another. You kind of, at this point, know, well, I see all the Jeep people wave at each other. If I get one of these, I wonder, and then you wave and it happens, right? Uh, well, since then, Jeep makes a bunch of different kinds of vehicles and they make mostly SUV type vehicles, but, but Jeep makes, you know, the Wrangler, which is kind of, that's what the old Jeep, uh, it, that's what the old Jeep from the world, the war, right? That's what it's based off of, right? The Wrangler is like this capable off-road vehicle, but then there's a bunch of other types like a Jeep Cherokee. And this is kind of aimed at like families who don't really need off-road capability, but they want the status of the Jeep, right? And there's the, the Grand Cherokee, which is fancy. And then there's, uh, the Jeep Compass, which is essentially just an SUV that says Jeep on it, a Jeep Patriot, same thing, right? And so, as you know, uh, people don't want people in their club that they don't want in their club. And so people started realizing that Jeep started making vehicles that aren't necessarily true to what a Jeep is, right? So a Jeep Compass, a Jeep Patriot, although... Technically, you're a Jeep owner. Technically, you will you will get waved at once in a while. From all my research, and I want you to keep in mind, I drive a Toyota Corolla. I don't know that much about this. From all the research I could find, if you own one of these Jeeps that are adjacent to you know a Jeep, right? There are a lot of people in the group who won't consider you a Jeep owner. You know what I'm saying? They might not give you a wave because oh because you don't drive a real Jeep. You know what I'm saying? And so yeah. the bigger it grows, the more people. Uh, the more rules have become associated with this. I need to talk to my boss at my first full-time job because he had a more traditional Jeepy looking Jeep. And on Monday mornings, we'd have like a meeting with our department and we'd all like meet in the parking lot and then we would all jump in his Jeep. We'd drive to the local coffee shop and do our meeting there. And that was, I think that was the first time that I ever got to ride in a Jeep like that. And that's when I learned about the whole wave mm -hmm. situation. And he explained to me about like, this is a thing that we just all do to each other. Right. So he has a, he's a big Jeep uh, fan in his family. His wife drives one of the more SUV style Jeeps. So in theory, he has probably driven both Jeeps at different points in right. his life. So I've got to wonder, yeah, like, he probably knows. I'll have to talk to him. His name's Chris. Well, here's my here's my plan. I do have the plan of 
because I was reading people who, who they have a Jeep and they have another vehicle and they'll just out of habit sometimes in their other vehicle, do the wave, the two finger, the three finger, whatever wave to the Jeep drivers. And sometimes they'll wave back and it makes you wonder, is it because they're being nice and waving because I'm waving or do they know that I have a Jeep at home? You know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm thinking about maybe just trying to wave at the Jeep drivers here in the next week or so, seeing what happens. Are they going to assume that this Corolla driver has a Jeep at home? Will anyone wave back at me? I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I learned, and like I said, keep in mind, take with a grain of salt. I'm using the internet here. There is a hierarchy to this, okay? There are a set of rules that Jeep drivers know. Uh, there's an etiquette, if you will, to Jeep waves, right? And it has to do with who waves first and who initiates the waves and, and what's the importance of this, right? Well, just to keep this in line, Jeep models are named as such. From 1944 to 1986, it was called the Jeep CJ. Okay, that was the model, the CJ. From 1986 to 1997 was the Jeep YJ. And then from 97 on, it's called uh, the TJ, right? And then it's the Wrangler. It's all the Wrangler, yeah. but that's what they're called. So it's a CJ, uh, a YJ, a TJ. And so basically, the old ones are the CJ, then the YJ, then the TJ. So how it works is this. If you are driving a Jeep and you come up on a driver of a Jeep whose Jeep is older than yours, you are required to initiate the wave because they get your respect because they own the quote unquote superior version. Right? So I could be a 16 year old, but I'm driving a 40 year old Jeep and I get all the respect. That's how it's supposed to work from what I understand, because based on the vehicle, based on this universal understanding that a true Jeep is right, like the CJ, the, the consumer, the civilian version of a Jeep. I think CJ actually stands for like civilian Jeep. I think that's sure. what it stands for. Uh, that's that's how it works, right? So if I if I in my t- 2008 Wrangler see a 1961 whatever, right, CJ, I'm supposed to wave at him. He'll wave back, right? That's that's part of it. Part number two is this, and this is where I don't quite understand what has the most pull, right? If you see someone whose Jeep is dirtier than yours, you're supposed to wave at them because, because if it's dirtier than yours, that means they use it for Jeep things. So right? in this order of operations. Age is more important than cleanliness? I think so. Okay. But I think maybe, this is a guess, maybe the formula would work like if I drive a 1990 and he drives a 1985, but mine's really dirty, maybe he waves at me. I don't know. Sure. I don't really know. But I was wondering that myself. Uh, Third, and not most important, not last, not least, whatever. Third is in the Jeep community, there are lots and lots of... uh, companies that create products specifically for jeeps right and outdoorsy type things like winches and light bars and racks and big tires and big rims and that kind of thing things that make jeeps even jeepier right and the third thing is if you see someone with a jeep that has more aftermarket accessories than yours (laughs) you are to wave first so basically there are things i take this to understand you wave at the more respected Jeep driver. The the lesser waves at the greater, right? And what makes you greater is old, not being old, but an older vehicle, a very well-used vehicle, or a very tricked-out vehicle. And I can I can only imagine if you came across all three, what would happen? I don't know. I don't know. Both hands off the wheel. Right. <laughs> it, it's so funny hearing you explain this because... 
Jeep is a very American thing, as we're talking about. And the way this Jeep social hierarchy sounds, it does not sound American at all. This sounds incredibly Japanese. Yeah. Like, in the way that, like, you you show respect to your elders. You show respect to people who did more. Like, it's it doesn't feel american at all which is funny it is funny it 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 does feel very and it also feels very like military you know what i mean okay yeah so maybe it actually is kind of american but yeah but it is really fascinating and so what i've learned is this and again danny my friend he drives a jeep gladiator which is basically a wrangler that's a truck right from my reading these are also very well respected because they're they're they're, they're true to what a Jeep should be. You know what I'm saying? They're capable. They're utility, right? Um, so here's what I've learned. And I want you to know that if you own a Jeep Compass or a Jeep Patriot, you are in the club. Okay? You are. That's all it takes is to own a Jeep. But don't feel bad if you don't get waved back at. Uh, there are nice folks out there who drive Jeeps. I My friend, Danny, he's one. There's a lot of nice folks who drive Jeeps. Um But there's also a lot of people who might not wave back. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. Backed by popular demand, we are going to do another listener episode. And we're trying them out maybe every 10 episodes And we're looking possibly in November being our next listener submitted questions episode. So if you have something that you want to know more about and don't want to research it and want us to do all the work, send us an email at what's yours at factoidpodcast.com. And as always, you can find us everywhere you guys get all your podcasts or on our website, factoidpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks.